Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome PMH Atwater, Ph.D., who's one of the original researchers in the field of near-death studies. She began her work in 1978 and was one of the people that pioneered the research in this area. She's written over 10 books and has recently finished a book that is the culmination of her 33 years in this field called Near-Death Experiences, The Rest of the Story, What They Teach Us About Living, Dying, and Our True Purpose. Now, we're going to be talking with her in a few weeks, exclusively focusing on this new book. But today, we're going to talk about the beginnings of near-death experience research She's won many awards, the Outstanding Service Award from the International Association of Near-Death Studies, the Lifetime Achievement Award, and the National Association of Transpersonal Hypnotherapists. She is a well-sought-after speaker, and it's a great pleasure and honor to have her today. Ladies and gentlemen, PMH Atwater, welcome to It's Rainmaking. Well, I'm glad to be aboard. Um, I hope everybody isn't too shocked by my voice. It will get better as I talk along. Yes, I have a little bit of laryngitis from a, um, a cold, but if you don't mind a deep baritone, we can do this. Near-death experiences, the rest of the story truly is a summary of 33 years of work plus an additional 10 years I spent before I died studying and experimenting with altered states of consciousness, mystical states, and psychic phenomenon. Near-death experiences, the rest of the story, covers 43 years of work and uh, involving nearly 7,000 people. We're talking adults and children. So I'm just one of these thorough types that when I look back at it, I have to kind of laugh and say, you know, I never did anything small. It's a landmark book, and it's the culmination or the synthesis of everything. Well, yeah. So we'll save that for two weeks from now. Indeed. Uh, because I know people are going to be very shocked, surprised, and really kind of uh, flipped around when they read that one. Uh, because there's a lot of material in there that I dared never say before. And I decided, okay, now that I'm retiring, by golly, I'm going to let her rip. <laughs> it, is, it, it is interesting how... It takes either getting out of one's formal profession or a release of having to want or desire credibility or to be discredited to finally come forward with certain things. Well, I did it all. You certainly have. All of that applies. You certainly have. For those of you who know about PMH Atwater, you have a frame of reference. But for those of you who don't know about her, I think we should begin with the context and the history of near-death studies. Paint the picture of how it was many, many years ago. Well, near-death, um, the term near-death experiences began in 1975. Uh, That's when Raymond Moody's book came out, uh, Life After Life. Now, that book would have never seen the light of day had it not been for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It was the publisher um, that Raymond had taken the, the book to. They called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and they said, you know, is this true? Can you validate this? Will you stand behind this? Because this is scary stuff. We don't want to bring it out. 
we don't want to take a chance on this book if we don't have somebody famous to back it up. And she backed it up. She backed it up with her reputation and her good name. That's how Raymond Moody first got uh, published. Uh, you know, if it hadn't been for Elizabeth, he'd have never made it. Um, then that book came out in 1975 worldwide, and it caused a sensation. Now, certainly the publishers knew that, um, and they were delighted that that indeed occurred. It talked about life after death. It talked about a hereafter. It talked about people who die and come back from death who are resuscitated or revive. And they, um, they have this scenario or, this, or a particular experience that occurs to them that they talk about it. Um, and it, it was, it was just such, it was just so new to the public, even though, you know, certainly in esoteric circles and metaphysical circles, this kind of thing has been known for hundreds of years. Uh, various types of historians and medical people knew this, known it for hundreds of years. If you go back in time, you can trace near-death research to the 1700s. Really? Absolutely. They didn't use that term, of course. It was Raymond Moody who coined the term near-death experience. But they talked about this type of people. And in fact, you can go back. There are some writings in Europe uh, in the 1600s that talk about this and talk about research teams that went out interviewing people who had these kinds of experiences. So when I say this isn't new, I mean it. It's not new, but it's new to the general public. The general public didn't know about it. The mass consciousness didn't know about it. And it was Raymond Moody, the pioneer, who turned that around. What's the name of the book he wrote? Life After Life. And you know, that's just gone through its anniversary issue. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think that came out a couple of years ago, it had its anniversary issue. It's still selling. It's still selling like hotcakes, millions of copies, and it's still worldwide. And a couple of years ago, China opened up its doors and allowed him in, just as long as he didn't talk about reincarnation. And just as long as he didn't use the word God, he was welcome, and he came in, and he really uh, was well covered by the media. So we're all very uh, proud of him for doing that. I know the woman in China that brought him in. And she's a gutsy lady. She was born there, um, the daughter of missionary parents. But she um, was raised, well, she was raised there, but then came later back to the United States and her, had her life here. And then when she retired from her work here, she returned to China. And uh, not too far from her father's church and where she had been raised. And she has done everything she can to educate the people, bring them aboard, teach them how to garden, teach them all kinds of things. Her name is Eunice Brock. And I'll tell you, that woman is a wonder woman. She's way up in her 80s. And what she does, I mean, it's fabulous. But anyway, she brought him to China. And we're all very proud of that. But you know what? One of them, well, there were several kind of weird things that happened. <laughs> um, Let's hear them. <laughs> <laughs> number one, 
the various medical types and scientists and researchers in Europe were scratching their heads. And they were saying, well, we go out and we talk to these kind of people, but we don't get that kind of model. We don't get that kind of pattern. And what we're getting is a little bit more of a downer. It, it's not that they all come back, you know, charitable, um, spiritual, um, happier people, but rather we're finding that they're coming back really confused. And we think that you people over there in the United States are making this all up. So for years, for years, there was a real schism between researchers in the United States and researchers in any other country, not just Europe. And, and they all thought that Raymond Moody was exaggerating the whole thing just to make a buck. Um, so there was that schism. Schism number two, and, th- and that schism is still haunting the field and probably will for a long, long time. And that concerns tunnels. We can trace reports of, of tunnels back in time to the sensationalization by the media of Raymond Moody's book. Now, let me explain that. In 1982, Gallup Poll did a scientific survey in the United States of people who had had near-death experiences. In that survey, 9% of the people said they encountered a tunnel. Only 9%. We, we didn't have the reports getting higher than that until after the media sensationalized the book. And then all of a sudden, people are talking about tunnels. Now, does that mean near-death experiencers are lying? I don't think so. Uh, what I've seen is that you don't have words in the English language to explain what this experience is. Well, we just don't have words. And especially for any kind of darkness or moving through darkness. So all of a sudden now they have a word. And that word is called tunnel. I've been at several meetings of experiences, experiencers where I have seen and witnessed near-death experiencers do that, where they're struggling to describe their experience. And then someone in the room says, oh, you went through a tunnel. So the person sort of thinks about it and grapples with it and says, oh, well, okay, it probably was a tunnel. You know, they're very much influenced by what they heard from people around them. They're very much influenced by the book, Life After Life. They're very much influenced by the media. So now, all of a sudden, they have a word. And, you know, what's happened since then is especially metaphysical types, but all kinds of people everywhere have been using this, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, the idea of the tunnel. As, as an explanation for wormholes and physics and, you know, all kinds of stuff when it doesn't apply, never did apply. In my research base, less than one-third of the people reported a tunnel. Wow. Um, and, and, and great, lots of them don't report tunnels at all. And if you're getting outside the United States, if you're getting outside of Canada, Australia, and uh, some of the countries in, in Europe, then people don't use tunnels at all. 
you, you, you never hear the word tunnel or even anything that might be a tunnel. Don't you think then the reference to the word tunnel became almost like a meme to describe the mysterious part, whatever couldn't be explained? Well, certainly it's become something like that in mass consciousness. It's become like an archetype because we don't know what else to call it. So we're calling it a tunnel when, in fact, there was never any tunnel there at all. Um, so, you know, it, so these kinds of interesting things began to occur. I've never had uh, the privilege of speaking like this before. So this, for me, is a real treat. I've never been able to talk about the early days. Why? Uh, nobody focuses on it. Nobody asks about it. So it never happens. So you're the, you're the first one. <laughs> That's because it's rainmaking time. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's really going back. Now, let me build a word picture here. Raymond Moody is being inundated by all kinds of people, all kinds of media, all kinds of opportunities to talk. He, he's, he's, um, he was absolutely flooded. Uh, he couldn't handle it all. And it really bothered him that he was getting a lot of flaky stuff and what he called New Age stuff, you know, connections to that. And he said, no, 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 this has to be a science. And so his desire was to start a scientific field of study. He wanted a research study field. So he after um, the book had been out for a few years, he he put out to the various uh, physicians, medical physicians, and scientists who might be interested. Would you like to meet with me and let's talk about how we can establish a scientific field of study about the near death experience? And at that time. Raymond Moody had purchased Elizabeth, well, um, Kubler-Ross. Yeah, he, had, he had purchased Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's uh, farm over. Um, it was between uh, the state of Virginia and West Virginia. He was there. He had the farm, and so he invited all these people over to the farm. And when they came to the farm, one of them came to see me. Now. Let me paint another picture. While all of this is going on, and Raymond Moody, in truly a wonderful vision, wanted to establish a legitimate professional field of study. One of those people that went to that meeting was Kenneth Ring. Kenneth Ring was the first scientific researcher of near-death experiences wrote several books, and, and they were the leaders in the field. He showed everybody else how to do it. He was the one. But when he, uh, he, was, he was teaching then at the University of Connecticut, and he'd gone into this bookstore in Hart, Hartford, Connecticut, and, and this book fell at his feet, and it was called I Died Three Times in 1977. By PMH Outwater, which is <laughs> <laughs> yours truly. I, I had self-published 
was a little book. And it, it, all it consists of is the four, are the four articles that I wrote for Many Smokes magazine, which was published then by the Bear Tribe, which was directed by Sun Bear. Uh, Wobbin, Sun Bear's apprentice. Um, her mother had died, and she was dealing with the death of her mother. She knew I had died. So she asked me to write these articles for uh, Mini Smokes magazine. And I did, and I kept them. And I took those four little articles, and I, I put them in this little book called I Died Three Times in 1977. And I only printed 50 copies. That's all that were ever printed. How a copy of that book got to Hartford, Connecticut, I have no idea. But it did. And, of course, it fell at the feet of Ken Ring. Ken Ring read that book. And um, he tried to find me by telephone. And he kept calling and calling and calling until finally he ran across Ricky Bradshaw, who was a near-death experiencer. And I had had a session with Ricky. So Ricky knew about me. And so Ricky told, and, and Ricky knew Ken Ring. Ricky had one of the most unusual experiences and verified um, that um, is in the annals of experiences. So um, Ricky was well-known, and he certainly knew Ken Ring. And so he told Ken Ring where I was and how to find me. So Ken Ring called, says he's coming down for this big meeting. He'd like to stay with me. Uh, I, was, I was married then, or just got married, to the, my husband, Terry Atwater. And we were living then in Harrisonburg, Virginia. So he came over. He stayed overnight. Well, no, he came over after the meeting was over. After the meeting was over, then he spent time with me. And he said, to, and he was just aghast. He said, my word, I had no idea anyone like you existed because I had gone out not knowing a thing about Raymond Moody. Never heard of the guy. Never read Life After Life didn't, didn't even know about the book. I had gone on, uh, gone out doing my own independent research because I was told to. I was told to do this in my third near-death experience. So I was going out doing my own work. I'd been doing it for over three years. And I didn't know that anybody else was doing it. I never, you know, I never heard of this, this stuff. And and Ken, when he found out I was doing what I was doing, we, we talked almost all night. And when he found out what I was doing, what I was finding, what my findings were, he just shook his head and he said, my God, he said, you're ahead of everybody else. You know more than any of the rest of us do. He said, you've got to come up to Hartford and you've got to meet your peer group. And, and you've got to uh, investigate what we're doing and compare what we're doing with what you're doing. And that's exactly what I did. Um, but if you wanted to do, and, and that's how I entered the field. Um, but it, 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 when I say that's how I entered the field, I want to be fair here to everyone concerned. Because when I entered the field, um, certainly I was a newbie. Certainly I was unique. I was different. 
Certainly people were shocked and surprised at what I was finding, especially on the after effects. And, but they weren't finding it. My work was unique. And I was using a very different pr- a protocol. What was it? I'm a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station. <laughs> My dad started teaching me police investigative techniques at the ripe old age of nine. I love it. So you were baby Columbo. Yeah. <laughs> and he was he was very strict. And his way of doing it, um, and I'll give you for instance, in those days, um, the dime store was the big store in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. And we'd go in the dime store, whether Newberry's or, you know, which, whichever one of them. And in those days, everything was, was low, covered by glass. They didn't stack shelves. Everything was on the same level. So you walk in the store, and I'm just this little kid, and I'm looking at all this stuff that I can clearly, easily see. It's covered by glass. But I can see all these items. And so I'm agog at all the glitter like any little kid would do. And it's always the same M.O. Dad would grab me by the shoulders, twirl me around, look at me eyeball to eyeball. And he'd say, all right, now describe that man that just walked by. Let's cover his hair, is there a part, his eyes, is he wearing glasses? Describe the clothes, the belt, the socks, the shoes. Is there any uh, watch, any distinguishing features? And, and I, I, you know, I was just so shocked because he was really a stepfather. He, um, he had adopted me. He was more than a stepfather. He adopted me. And, and he scared me. And he would, you know, we'd be crossing Main and Shoshone Street in downtown Twin Falls. And the light would switch, and we're starting to cross the street. And Dad would say, okay, now. Describe that woman that just walked by. And I'd have the same checklist. And I got to the point where I was staring <laughs> at everything. <laughs> because I never knew when he would do it. And and again, he scared me. So this went on for three years. Off and on for three years. He was always testing me. Can you observe truly? One of the things that bothered my dad to no end was let's say, for instance, there was an accident and four witnesses to the accident. And each of the witnesses would have a different story. And as a police officer, this was nightmare city. That's crazy making. <laughs> yeah. So he wanted to be sure that whatever I saw was what was really there. And, and Dad said, you know, you never use language ahead of the individual. Therefore, you can't use questionnaires. You can't use language ahead of the individual. When you go to talk to a witness, you always say, what did you experience? If they say, I saw an, uh, a car accident, then and then only can you talk about a car and an accident. You never use words ahead of the experiencer. Dad also taught me to watch the body. Your body says more than your mouth does. So you watch the body and how they use it. So he was very 
insistent on what I learned. So, you know, when I died and came back, I relied on that because that's how I grew up. That's what I knew. And I had used that kind of, of, of a protocol various times in my life. And it, was, it always proved to be quite invaluable. So I was using a very different protocol. And people just, they didn't know what to do with it because everybody else, you know, yet does double-blind studies with a control group, or they use question and scientific questionnaires that, you know, mathematical percentages. I didn't understand their languaging. I didn't know what they were telling me. Hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gal from Idaho. I'm a Westerner. Um, I, I just had high school education. That's all I had. My idea of higher education was how high... You could you could sail over uh, a corral fence when a bull was chasing you. Now, that's <laughs> higher education. I have a question for you. I really, to the best of your ability, I'd like you to translate, which is when you say that you died, what does that mean in terms of concrete reality? You died, meaning heart failure, brain failure, no breathing for several minutes. What does that mean on a clinical level that you're referring to? Okay, when we're talking about the clinical level, most near-death experiencers have these kinds of episodes. When there is no heartbeat, there is no lung action, and there is no brain waves. So the brain, so they flatline, and there's no vital signs. And what I have found, what most of us in fact, have found in our research, is that the average near-death experiencer is without vital signs from 5 to 20 minutes. Wow. Average. That's not unusual. That's average. So it's not just 3 minutes. Oh, 5 to 20 minutes is average. Wow. Now, with myself, we also find with near-death experiencers that maybe they're only out a minute or two. Um, We also find with near-death experiencers that they get to that point of death and then come back. So we have this full range of what can happen. In, the, in my own case, my first one, I wasn't out that long. In my second and third one, I was out, you know, I mean, who's watching a clock? But I'm going to estimate maybe 15 to 20 minutes on those two. But the first one, maybe a couple of minutes. Wouldn't upon returning into the body, the body be not able to be functional then, based on our belief system and current understanding of both the reality, the body reality? Well, what I can say to that is that in most cases, the body is functional. It is still intact. And one of them that's really kind of funny is the case of George Ritchie. Now, George Ritchie was the first person Raymond Moody ever heard talk about his near-death experience. So George Ritchie was, in, in a way, the one that started it all because he was the one who inspired Raymond Moody. George Ritchie was a psychiatrist. He had his experience when he was, I think, in the Army, and he was taken to a base camp, and there um, he had died. And I mean, clinically fully died and put in the morgue. 
is covered with a sheet. It was in the morgue. Now, um, he had a very long uh, scenario, and it wrote the book, Return from Tomorrow. It's a very small book. But if you can ever get that book, get it. But uh, when it was time for George Ritchie to come back to his, uh, his body, he couldn't find it. It wasn't in his room where he thought it would be. And he had to search all over to find it. Found it in the morgue. Well, all the bodies are covered with white sheets. So he didn't know which body was his and that he could go back and reactivate. And, and in his case, his class ring, was his, his hand, his arm, was hanging below the sheet. And his class ring showed on his finger. And he recognized the class ring. So he went back and activated that body. And sure enough, that was his. Are you telling me that this guy got back into his body in the morgue under the sheet? What if he was in the cooler? Well, that, that's exactly what happened to uh, George Rodanaya. Only he'd been taken out of the cooler in that case. Um, George Rodanaya, and he's, uh, he's one of my research-based people. George, he was in Tbilisi, Georgia. And uh, he was a communist dissident during those days when it wasn't cool to be a communist dissident. He was an MD. And... Um, he wanted to leave Russia or Georgia and um, finally got a way to get out of the country. He was married, had two kids, boy and girl. And, and so the, and, uh, to Nederland, Texas, where he would be a minister. So he, he got this all arranged. The cars came to pick up his wife and children to take them to Moscow where they would get on a plane and fly to the United States and to Texas. So the car came to take them. <clears throat> then a second car came to take him. That second car turned out to be full of the KGB. And they ran him down. They didn't just run him down with the car. They ran over his body again and again to make sure he was completely dead. When they uh, got the body to the Tbilisi uh, hospital, he was um, pronounced dead on arrival and put into a freezer vault. Oh, my God. And that's what they do in Tbilisi. They put you right away into a freezer vault. Now, it is certainly true that nobody knows what the temperature of that freezer vault was. We have no way of, of finding out. But they put him in a freezer vault, and he was there for three days. So we're talking day and night, three days. During that time, he had one of the longest, and I think one of the most incredible near-death near experiences I've ever heard. And um, among the things that happened to him were later verified. Seriously verified, like by clinicians, medical people? Yes. yes. And let me give you two of them, two of the things that happened. 
And when you're done with this example, I do want to go back to the other guy who was in the morgue and woke up and found his ring on his finger. But go ahead with this. Okay, there were two things that I checked, or that I could check. And and one of them was, let me just build a little bit more on the story. Um, George was very well known, very political. So they had to do an autopsy. We're talking about the one that was in the... Uh... We're talking about George Rodanaya. So on the third day, they pull out the drawer, and they take him out of the freezer vault. And they put him on the autopsy table. There's a team of doctors that are cutting him up. They were doing the T-cut. Uh, the top bar of the T is uh, the lower abdomen, and then the stem of the T goes up the middle of the body up to the throat. So they had done the lower part of, of the T. They, they were in the process of going up the middle of his body, cutting him open, but his eyes opened. Now that's not that's not um, that's not unusual. That can be an automatic response. So they just simply closed his eyes and kept cutting. His eyes opened again, and again they didn't think anything of it. They closed his eyes and kept cutting. On the third time he opened his eyes, that was unheard of. And they knew then that he was coming back to life. And the, the head of the autopsy, one of his own uncles, was a physician on that autopsy team. The, the chief physician screamed and stepped back and had to take a one-month leave of absence. <laughs> I would have to, too. <laughs> so they sewed the guy up, and he had to have lots of surgeries. Um, just, um, I don't know how many months, I've forgotten how many months he was in the hospital. Lots and lots of surgeries to rebuild him. Almost every bone in his body had been broken. Um, so he was in a bad shape. But one of the first things he talked about when he could talk, because when you die... Um, your tongue swells up in, your, in the mouth cavity. So you can't talk, can't eat, can't do nothing until that tongue shrinks back down to normal size. And it took three days before his tongue could you know, shrink back down. And, and then he could talk. And he said, he said to the physicians, because among the things that happened when he was out of his body in the different scenarios, he was in the birthing section of the hospital because his friend's wife was about to give birth, so he went over there to see if she delivered, and she did. She had a little boy, and that little boy um, was was dropped by the head nurse onto the floor and broke his pelvis, and he was, he was screaming and crying and screaming and crying because of the, the pain of the, do of the nurse dropping him. So, so one of the things that George did while he was out of body, he went over there, he saw what was happening and why, and nobody else had noticed the nurse and what she did. Nobody was x-raying the kid. Nobody was doing anything. So he told the little baby to shut up. He said, children and animals can see spirits. And he said that that little, little uh, kid could see. He said, shut up. You know, I'm going to get you some help. And so as soon as he could talk, he told 
those physicians get up there and x-ray this child. Now, bear in mind that George was a, was a, was a physician. So he knew what he was talking about. He described the break of the pelvis exactly. And and he told why that the nurse dropped the child. So they went up and they x-rayed this child. And the hip was broken exactly as, as George had described. How fascinating. And they, they confronted the head nurse. And she admitted it. <gasps> That's wild. The second thing I was able to verify with George's wife, Nino. And that is why he was out of body. She was at the gravesite in the cemetery, picking out graves, you know, picking out the gravesite. And she was standing there at the gravesite. And and in her mind, she was going over a list of the various men that would be her next husband. I mean, she was a widow. She had two kids to raise. And she wanted to remarry. So she had this list of the, of the, of the different men that she would consider. And she was going over their various qualities, whether or not she really wanted to marry that guy or not. So when they got together again, she was at the hospital. He told her everything that she was thinking about as she was standing in front of the gravesite. He named all of the men and all of the qualities that she was listing in her mind. Now, bear in mind, she never told anybody. This was a mental process. And she was so shocked that she wouldn't have anything to do with George for a year. Wow. And I asked her, why not? I mean, weren't you happy to see him back? And she said, how would you like to live with someone when you have no privacy? Yeah, but he was in the spirit world at that point. It didn't matter. After that, he continued to be able to read people's minds. He could see inside people's minds. Remember the after effects. Oh, that's right. The after effects. And this continued. And it completely freaked her out. And it took her a year before she could get accustomed to it. So those were both very valid. Wow. We have lots of valid cases. Should we go back to the other uh, George? Yeah, you had a question about George Ritchie, the American. Yeah, was that George Ritchie who came back and located yeah. the ring on his finger? Yeah, that was George Ritchie that uh, recognized his class ring on the finger that was hanging below the white sheet. And that's how he knew which body to, uh, to go back to. Otherwise, he would not have known. And he would, he would not have been able to come back. So what happened when he came back into his body in the morgue, laying on the table with a sheet over him? Well, of course, um, there just happened, don't you love the way this goes? There just happened to be an orderly walking by in the hall. <laughs> and the autopsy room, the door just happened to be open. I, 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 love, I love this kind of stuff. And, and so the orderly noticed that um, the sheet was wiggling. Well, you know, a corpse doesn't wiggle. And so he went screaming for a doctor. And the doctor came back and discovered that, yes, George was coming back to life. He gave him a, a shot in the chest area and um, then, you know, wheeled him, wheeled him into uh, the surgical rooms. And, and we now have the story of George Ritchie. Now, 
these kinds of people, whether they be tremendous cases like I've just mentioned, or very, very simple ones, where the individual is met by something like the living dark or the loving nothingness, or there's a friendly voice, or there's a quick in and out of body experience. It doesn't matter what it is. And it, uh, there are after effects. And it's the after effects that validate the experience, not the other way around. And in the early days, and you can understand why, in the early days, people were jumping on what we, what we in research call the light show. They were jumping on the light show. This, the scenario is what everybody's talking about. And, and, you know, that's what got all the publicity. Um, that's what alerted the media and, and thrilled the media. And, and that's what all the books were about. And that's what everybody talked about. They weren't talking about the after effects. Now, Raymond Moody did talk about some of them. He's, he said that they, you know, you lose your fear of death. Um, you come back more charitable and kinder than you were before. Very service oriented. Um, those simple kinds of things. But he, he didn't say anything about anything else. And I'm sure the reason he didn't is because he probably didn't know. Well, the after effects were among the first things I recognized. And I realized that it was the after effects that were validating the experience. That from this experience, if the experience was intense enough, it would, it would engender a pattern of physiological and psychological after effects. And you could find this pattern in children, toddlers, adults, seniors, didn't matter, Chinese, uh, people from Africa, people in the state of Texas, didn't matter. And it was those after effects and that pattern of after effects that I focused a lot of attention on. Um, you know, the experience itself, I found, you know, four, four patterns, four different types of near-death experiences and went on to do a lot of work with integrating the experiences and that kind of thing. Um, but realize that, um, that nobody knew me. I, I, you know, I'm just this woman from Idaho. Who am I? And, and I, I had all this information. How could I have gotten it? And I told everybody, but they didn't believe me. And I, it's just like I ran into a still wall. Were you depressed about it? Uh, I was depressed uh, in the beginning about, about my inability to handle my body and to bring my body back in a way that it was fully functional. I found that depressing. Is it William Reimer who helped you so much? Oh, Dr. Reimer. Yes. That, he, he saved me. He did. Dr. William Reimer, William G. Reimer, Ontario, Oregon. Absolutely. He was a naturopath. And I'd always gone to MDs. I didn't know anything about, you know, alternative healing. Um, he was a homeopath. He knew all these kind of stuff, life cell analysis, kinesiology, iridology, you, you, know, you, uh, you name it. And he was proficient in it and probably had, was certified in it. Plus, he was psychic. 
very helpful to me and made a big difference. When I actually began my research, which is about the year, a little bit after my experiences, because it took a while to get my body in gear where I could even walk and tell the difference between left and right, you know, and see properly and hear properly. So it took a while to get the body repaired. But once I did and started researching, I was so passionate with what I was doing. I was so dedicated to what I was doing that nothing bothered me. You couldn't stop me. I knew what I was doing. I knew what I had to do. I knew what I was told to do by the voice like none other during my third near-death experience. That voice said, and I quote, test, revelation. You are to do the research. One book for each death. Books two and three were named, not book one. I was shown what was to be in each book, but not how to do it or how long it would take me. The only reason I am alive is to do this work. And so I had that power, that presence, that strength with me. I had energy like a nuclear reactor. <laughs> People say, where did you get your energy? And I tell them from dying. And that's the truth. I got it from, from, from dying. In these three near-death experiences, was there an angelic presence? Nah, I missed all that stuff. You missed all that stuff? I, I, I missed the sense of angels. What I got instead was loved ones who died and gone on before me. I got that. Uh, Jesus. I was visited by Jesus. I got that. Um, but I was able to uh, see thoughts. I was able to um, understand and exercise creation itself. In my third one, I was able to witness creation itself, how it works, what it is, consciousness itself, what consciousness is. So mine were very deep in that way, beyond the normal kind of, you know, I was met by this angel and, and the angel <laughs> told me to come back. I noticed that you also talked about the distinction, which I think is very important, between a life review versus reliving every thought, word, deed that has gone yeah, on. I, I, I got the big one. Can you share the context of that? Because a lot of people think you go through a life review when really you're reliving everything. Well, you can do both. Everybody's different. And not everybody has a life review. I want to make that clear. Not everybody gets one. Those that do, for some, it can be like sitting in a movie theater and you're watching a screen go by with different parts of your life. For another one, she was watching bubbles go by, and in each bubble was a different part of her life. Another one entered this incredible building, and um, on the wall, on all these shelves of the wall, uh, were, were TV sets, and each one was tuned to a different part of her life. And she could enter anyone she wanted and then relieve, relive that particular uh, part. Um, so for some of us, it was kind of like a review, but for me and a lot of others, it was a reliving. 
and for us that got the big one. It was the reliving of every thought you had ever thought. Every word you had ever spoken. Every deed you had ever done. Plus the effect of that on everyone that was ever in your environment, whether you met them or not. Plus the effect of that on the soil, on the plants, on the animals, on the air. So you got the full, you got the full thing, the full gestalt. Now with some people, this, this guy in Chicago, uh, it was in my research page. He had uh, been with the mafia. I mean, really. And after his after his experience, he couldn't do that anymore. Couldn't kill anymore. And so when I met him, he, he was he was in this basement of this church, and he was helping uh, feed the homeless. And and so we talked about his near death experience, and in, in his he had to um, how do I say this become or enter the body, the mind, the spirit of each person and their families that he had ever hurt. And he had to experience the effect of what he did to them from their angle. And it so traumatized him that he could never lie or steal or kill again. I mean, he just couldn't do it. Can you imagine Hitler's life review? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if he had one. (laughs) Or reliving. But you can imagine me going out doing my own work and and finally... Uh, my first book, Coming Back to Life, was published in 1988. When people in the field found out that I did that, so they were finding out in 1986, 1987, they attacked me in ways that I was not prepared for. I mean, I was prepared for maybe fundamentalist Christians having a little fit because they didn't understand the material. I was prepared for various people in the in the you know in the com- in the country at large, and you know whatever objections they might have, but I was not prepared for the people I knew and loved to turn on me, and they did, and and they did viciously, and um, th- this kind of thing went on for years. It went on for seven years, and it got to the point um, where, you know, I tried every um, forgiveness prayer I knew, reconciliation. You know, I'd face them. I'd talk to them. I did everything that I knew to do, and nothing worked. Um, I'd get phone calls threatening me with a lawsuit. I'd get people knocking on my door telling me I was insane, and it just, um, I was slapped, I was spit at, uh, lost all my royalties because I got to be part of, of the nation's first destruction of an old line publishing company by a corporate raider, lost everything. I mean, you know, I can tell you horror stories up your kazoo, and, and I really feel in looking back at all of this, and, and by the way, I, at the end of those seven years, when I finally came out of this depression, I entered a very 
that winter. We went into a very, very deep and dark depression. And I just looked at you and cry. I couldn't say anything. And for uh, a winter, that's all I could do was cry. And and so when I came out of it, you know, it wasn't any big light or anything. It, it was just this kind of numb feeling of, okay, I'm going to work harder and I'm going to do more. And that's exactly what I did. I just didn't pay any attention to anybody anymore. I just decided, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't like me, if you don't like my work, if you think I'm crazy, if you think I'm insane. None of this matters. What matters is that I'm going to fulfill my mission. I was told by the voice like none other to do this, and I'm going to do it. And I did. And, you know, 10 books. 10 books on my, on my near-death findings. My last one is out now. Near-death experiences, the rest of the story. But I, I'd, I'd like to share with you, if I could, if we have time, I'd like to share with you what I learned from all of this. Please do. Because it was just devastating to me. Uh, but I learned a lot from that. And I wrote it down. I learned that facing my attackers and talking with them works wonders and solves most of the problems between us. Plus, it saves everyone a lot of money. I learned that what my attackers have done, they did out of fear. Fear that I would not credit their work and honor their sacrifices. I learned that any new idea or unique method or finding is an automatic flag for attack. No one wants a newcomer messing up their theories. I learned that a long walk on the dark side is good for you. It keeps you humble and helps you find different ways to accomplish what you want to do. I learned that your attackers are the best gift God could ever give you for they keep you honest and enable you to learn what you need to know about yourself. I learned to bless what hurts because that's just your soul trying to catch your attention. And I learned to bless the peace that follows listening to your soul. Beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) It is an honor to have you on the show today. And to be with you. And I'm so looking forward to more. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we close? Oh, you know, with all the thousands of people that I've worked with, they all say, not all of them, most of them say the same thing. Four words. Four words that sum up all of it. And those four words are, always there is life. Always there is life. That means, Kim, that there is no afterlife. There is no before life. There is no now life. There is only life. That's all there ever was, and that's all that will ever be. In some form, in some dimension, in some manner, there is always life. We were never lied to. And we were told that God is eternal, life is eternal. We were never lied to. 
It's the truth. Our whole notions of time, though, are going to be smashed. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And our whole notion of who we are as human beings are going to be smashed, too. Just wait till you read the next book. I can't wait. It should be at my office today. Yes. It's going to blow your cookies. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show today to share your experience of these last 38 years and your pioneering work and the history of the near-death experience research.